Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. And uh, if you have your sheets uh, there, it might help you to uh, have that open. You'll see there's one or two headings uh, which might help you as we go along and think about this theme. Let me just pray as we begin to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who sees and knows our pain. And thank you that you're a God who speaks into our pain and our problems. And we pray that you might speak now as we look at your word, the Bible. We pray that it would bring light in our darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Come young and old, both great and small, come listen unto me. Come listen to me, and I shall hear, I shall tell you a story of the sea. A gallant boat and crew one night to the sea became prey. So that night it was their last on earth, that night in Bucky Bay. With eight all told of seamen bold including two little boys. While leaving home, they did not think it would be their last goodbye. Their time was come, their race was run, no longer there to roam. So that noble crew, they perished there in sight of land and home. I'm reading from a a local book, the Fisherman's Gospel Manual by Graham Mayer. And that poem tells the story of the Bucky disaster. A boat was lost in raging seas on the rocks not far out of Bucky Harbor. Eight were killed, some from the same family, two of them just young boys. And every fishing town along this coast has similar tales to tell, including this one. And when you see that kind of disaster, you might well ask, What kind of a God allows that kind of evil and suffering in his world? Suffering affects everyone, uh, from fishermen to theological scholars. Here's one theological scholar named Jerry Sitzer. His wife, his daughter, and his mother were all killed on the same day in a car crash caused by a drunk driver. What kind of God allows that kind of evil and suffering in his world? Jerry Sitzer wrote a book about his experience and he said this, I wondered if I could trust a God who allowed or caused this suffering. It was as if he lacked the power or the desire to protect me. Later in the book, he summed up his feelings shortly after the crash, saying, maybe there is no God and no meaning in life. It affects young and old, rich and poor. Suffering is a global problem. No one's free of it. It's a few years ago now, but I wonder if you remember uh, the Indian Ocean tsunami, Boxing Day 2004. 250,000 people killed in a day. What kind of God allows that kind of evil and suffering in his world? 
And following that disaster, one journalist wrote this. If God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. And for many people, maybe for you today, that argument sums it up. These Christians say they believe in an all-loving and all-powerful God, but surely if God was good, he would want to stop the suffering. And surely if God was powerful, he'd be able to stop the suffering. So God is either not good, or he's not powerful, or as many people believe today, there is no God at all. That is the problem of suffering. It's the first point on your sheet. And can I say, when we talk about the problem of suffering, I know this is not some kind of hypothetical philosophical conundrum, you know, that people in ivory towers with big brains just sit and think about. This is a deeply personal issue. The question is not just, why does God allow suffering? It's, why did God allow my suffering? It's, why was my family lost at sea? Or why was my child born disabled? Or why does my wife have cancer? Or whatever it is for you. So maybe you you look at it all, the evil, the suffering, your own suffering, and you just conclude an all-powerful, all-loving God wouldn't allow suffering, therefore there must not be a God. It sounds a pretty watertight argument, doesn't it, when you put it like that. Many people are convinced by it. Actually, I want to show you that logically it is full of holes. It's not a good argument at all. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny at all. Listen, as I say that, I understand this problem of pain and suffering is about much more than logical arguments. You might well say, well, listen, I'm suffering here. I don't care about your logical arguments. Well, fair enough. There is more to say than this. But here's the second point on your sheet. The logic of suffering. I read those... Uh, intriguing verses from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You'll see them on your sheet. We're going to particularly focus on verse 16. Ecclesiastes is a really fascinating uh, and ancient book of the Bible. And uh, at, at, at places in the book, the writer conducts a kind of thought experiment. Various points along the way, he says, okay, let's imagine there is no God. Or at least there's no God who's actually involved in the world. What are we left with? How does life work then? You can see that in the little phrase he uses. Just have a look at verse 16, little number 16. He uses that phrase, under the sun. That's him saying, okay, imagine that life on earth under the sun is all there is. Imagine there's no God, or at least no God who's involved. So verse 16, I saw something else under the sun. This is imagining there's no God. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. His point is this, taking God out of the picture doesn't make the problem of evil and suffering go away. We still have a longing, like this writer does, for for justice. We, We want evil and the suffering it brings to be done away with. And yet it just seems to be everywhere. Can I say, evil and suffering are just as much of a logical problem for the atheist as they are for the Christian. I don't just mean that both suffer. Obviously, that's true. It's just as much of a logical problem for the atheist as it is for the Christian. In fact, I think 
Evil and suffering might be more of a logical problem for the atheist. You might think that sounds mad. Well, let me explain why. If there is no God, as Ecclesiastes is imagining, then there is ultimately no such thing as right and wrong. If there is no God, there can be no such thing as what we would call objective moral values. Why? Well, if there is no God to set the absolute standard of what is right and wrong, good and evil, well, then all we're left with is our opinions. The best we could hope to do is to express an opinion about what we think is right or wrong. So, for example, you might say, I think murder is wrong. But what if I come along, perhaps from a different place or a different culture, and I say, no, no, in my culture, murder's fine. How do you decide who's right? That might sound an absurd question. You might say, well, of course murder's wrong, but my, my question is why? And you might say, well, my way means that fewer people get murdered, and that's got to be a good thing, right? But I might respond, well, why is that a good thing? Why should I care about this? You see, when you drill down into the issue of what is good and bad, right and wrong, you need some kind of objective standard to measure it against. In other words, you need God. That's why in the book of Ecclesiastes, I wish we had more time to do more of it, that the thought experiment where he imagines there's no God, it always ends up in a kind of meaningless, desperate, nihilistic place of despair. Now, you might say, okay, but what on earth has that got to do with suffering? Well, the point is this. If there is no God, then there are no objective moral values. We can't say anything is absolutely right or wrong. Therefore, we cannot say there is definitely objective evil in the world. But here's the thing. We know there are things that are objectively right and wrong. We know there is objective evil in the world, in part because it causes our suffering. To get back to the Jerry Sitzer case, it was wrong for the other driver to get drunk. Worse still for him to drive drunk. And his wickedness caused great suffering. The, the, the great thinker and writer C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist and became a Christian, put it this way. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe to when I said unjust? Of course, I could have given up the idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. That's the opinions. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world really is unjust, not simply that it appears to be unjust. Consequently, he said, my atheism turned out to be too simple. You can see the same point from the, the other angle when, when you listen to this fascinating exchange with the atheist Richard Dawkins. An interviewer said to Dawkins, ultimately your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. And Dawkins thought for a moment and was then forced to agree. If there is no God, ultimately our moral judgments are just matters of opinion or random facts of evolution. But here's the thing, we know 
don't we? We know that there are, are objective moral values. We know that rape and murder and all the rest of it is wrong and causes great harm. The great civil rights campaigner Martin Luther King wrote this in his letter from Birmingham jail. He said, How do you know if a human deed or law is unjust? Only if there's a higher law that says it's unjust. And so, as the New York Times best-selling author Tim Keller put it, evil and suffering, because they rely on good and evil, evil and suffering may be, if anything, evidence for God. And briefly, there's a second logical problem with saying that, that, that pointless suffering disproves God. Who's to say that our suffering is pointless? Now, look, you might say, okay, I can see how some, some kinds of suffering might build our personality or grow our character. There might be some good that comes from it. But, but what about the random pointless suffering like cancer or disability or the thousands who died in a tsunami? What's the point there? Just because we don't know the reason God allows suffering, it doesn't logically mean that there can't be one. For example, picture a distraught three-year-old child who's just been told by her parents that they have to move hundreds of miles away from home to a new city. The child suffers greatly. It seems like the end of the world. She doesn't want to leave her friends and her nursery and her home and everything she's ever known. She doesn't understand why would her parents inflict this pointless suffering on her. Of course, what she doesn't understand is that her parents are making this decision for her ultimate good. The father has been laid off at work. If they don't move now to find new work, well, then ultimately they'll all suffer much more when there's no food on the table. But, of course, the three-year-old cannot possibly understand all the complexities of this situation. And so she is left with what feels like pointless suffering. And can I say the gap between a three-year-old and her parents is much smaller than the gap between us and Almighty God. God may have reasons for suffering that serve some higher purpose that we simply cannot understand, or cannot understand now at least. And in the book of Isaiah, one of the Old Testament books, God says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes we are conscious of the good that comes through suffering. Sometimes in, in hindsight, we, we, we can see, can't we, that some time of adversity has actually been the making of us. Isn't that often true when you look back on your life? The hardest times have been the times that in the long run actually shaped your character for good. But here's the thing. Even if we never know the reasons now, that doesn't mean God couldn't have a reason. That was beyond our grasp. So suffering doesn't disprove God. It might even be evidence for God. But of course, you might say, well, that's fine. But we still ask the question, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Where does it come from? What's the cause? Well, that's point number three. And let me say straight away that there are no simple and certainly no trite answers here. Um, if there were some kind of quick answer that you could write on the back of a postage stamp, 
then you wouldn't be here. You're all intelligent people. You would have figured it out. We can't say everything about the causes of suffering, but we can say something. And when it comes to evil and suffering in the world, the Bible says the heart of the problem is us. Jesus said as much. Did did you hear it in the reading from Mark's gospel? The setting is that Jesus was arguing with some religious zealots who believed that things you touched made you morally unclean. And, And Jesus told them they were wrong. And instead he said, this is Mark chapter 7, verse 20 on your sheet, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, and sexual immorality and theft and murder and all the rest. What caused Jerry Sitzer's suffering? The loss of his wife and his mother and his daughter? It was the wickedness of the drunk driver. What caused the suffering of the victims of 9-11? It was the wickedness of the terrorists who flew the planes. What is the root cause of most of the war and conflict that you see on the 10 o'clock news? Somewhere down the line, it's human greed and selfishness, isn't it? It's greed for money or power or oil or the tyranny of some dictator who's playing at being God and exploiting his people. Another Bible writer puts it this way. James, the brother of Jesus, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And I just think that could run as a banner under most of the news stories on the 10 o'clock news tonight, couldn't it? That's how it is in our world. The Bible calls that wickedness sin. And it shows us the hard truth that we are all guilty. That sin, which at its heart is a rejection of God, it lives in all of us. There's a shocking book called Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. It tells the story of a group of very ordinary, middle-class, pretty well-to-do German men who were recruited to the military police during the Second World War. You would not have looked at this men and said, there's a bunch of monsters. They were just ordinary, hard-working, middle-class, well-mannered people. But the book tells the story of how they willingly, not under duress, but willingly murdered tens of thousands of Jews in cold blood. The famous clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson put this book on his top 10 list of things you must read to get insight about the human condition. He says the alarming point of this book is that we are all of us, all of us capable of monstrous evil. That sin lurks in us all. We are all guilty. Perhaps not to that extent, but all guilty. And listen, you know it. You know that you're guilty, so do I. How many of us can honestly say that we live up to our own standards and expectations of ourselves? Never mind God's much purer and higher standards. We all know it. And the fallout from our sin, in one way or another, is suffering. Sometimes our own suffering, sometimes the suffering that we cause to others. 
Listen, you might come back to me and say, well, okay, that's, that's good as far as it goes. I can see that much suffering, maybe even most suffering, is caused by human sin. And, but, but what about the random stuff? You know, what about the famines and the earthquakes? What about the Indian Ocean tsunami? That wasn't an act of man. In fact, the insurance company would call it an act of God. So surely that one's on him. Now, the Bible says very clearly that the effects of our human sinfulness are far-reaching. The heart of sin is when God's creatures turn their backs on and become disconnected from their creator. And that has damaged and twisted and broken and corrupted our whole world. The whole place is broken. The whole place is not working as it should. You know that. Just go out on the streets. And so we are surrounded by great and unspeakable tragedies like childhood cancer and tsunamis and war and disease and on and on it goes. There's a verse in the Bible that says the creation itself, not just the people, but the fabric of the world is, is groaning. It's not right. It's been broken. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that the people who suffer the most are necessarily the people who have sinned the most. I'm not saying that. And in a broken, messed up world, it's not as neat as that. Instead, we live in a world that has been broken by sin, and we all feel its effects in in different ways. Well, okay, you might say. Maybe that's how it is. So has God just abandoned us to our pain and misery? Well, no, that's the fourth point, the God of suffering. Let me say this to you today, especially if you are suffering right now. The God of the Bible is not distant and uncaring when it comes to our suffering. Jesus, in fact, is is unique. Jesus has step down from heaven to earth. He's become a man. He's walked among us. Don't overlook that. In fact, think about it. It means that Jesus has lived your experience. He knows what it is to be human, to be frail and fragile, to feel pain, to be tortured by grief in his mind. He knows what it is to be full of sorrow. Jesus knows what it is to cry bitter tears, just like we do. Actually, more than that, Jesus knows what it is to be falsely accused, to be tried, to be falsely convicted of a crime you didn't commit. Jesus knows what it is to be strung up and killed. Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned completely by his friends. If you don't believe me, here's a little sample of verses from the Gospels. Mark 14, Jesus said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Or John chapter 11, the shortest verse in the Bible, two words, Jesus wept. And he was weeping at the grave of his friend. And then there's those verses on your sheet from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. 
uh, in an extraordinary way I don't have time to go into. Those are written about Jesus but hundreds of years before his birth. And they speak of him who was as one who was despised and rejected. A man of suffering familiar with pain. If you feel pain, yeah, Jesus is familiar with that feeling. Those verses speak about Jesus unjustly dying a shameful, painful criminal's death with his, na- with his hands and feet nailed to a cross until he suffocated. So in Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible is a God who knows what it is to suffer. Now that doesn't tell you why you're suffering, but it does mean you're not alone in your suffering. God is not distant, he's not aloof, he's not far off from your suffering. He knows what it is to feel pain. Of course, when you think about Jesus' suffering, especially his death, it kind of begs the question, well, why? Why has Jesus the one who was pure and good, why has he endured such pain? Most of all, the cross. Why did he go quite willingly, quite deliberately to die on a cross? It seems bizarre, doesn't it, when you think of it? Well, the cross, if you'll pardon the pun, is the crux of it all. The cross is where we see all these thoughts actually about suffering coming together. What is the cause of suffering and brokenness in the world? We are human sin. We've seen that all too clearly. And what is human sin? It's rejecting God. It's it's living our way, not his. It's breaking his law. That's what causes the suffering in the world. And sometimes, don't you think, God, why don't you make it all stop? Why don't you do away with evil? Get rid of it and the suffering that it causes But as you think that thought or say those words, you need to stop and realize what you're saying. Doing away with evil means doing away with me and you. Instead, Jesus has come to rescue us. Jesus says that as he dies on the cross, He's taking on himself the punishment that we deserved for sin. He's taking away the sin of his people. Indeed, he's saving us from the eternal suffering of hell. He's making a way for us to be rescued from sin and ultimately from suffering. And Jesus promises that those who trust him and follow him, that those who will come humbly to him and admit that they're sinners and, and, and trust in him and his death to save them, will one day, either when your earthly life ends or when Jesus returns, go with Jesus to be with him forever in his heavenly kingdom. And that kingdom will be a place where there is no pain and no more sin and no more sickness and no more suffering. And so the question is, in a world of suffering, do you want that? Do you want that? Do you want to be part of his kingdom? If you do, you need to to trust in Jesus to accept him as your savior and the Lord of your life. Let me say thanks for listening, especially if you're here for the first time. 
And uh, if you were here for the first time, no doubt you have got many other thoughts or objections or questions. And I'd really encourage you, don't let this thought just go away as you head for Sunday lunch. Um, I reckon there are precious few times in, in life where we actually have a time and space to think about the big and really important questions of life. Normally life just hurries along, doesn't it? One thing to the next. Don't miss the opportunity of these next two weeks. Come back to the different events um, and hear more about this. And if you want to take something away today that would, that would help you just to read and think a bit more about this, two things. Um, I'll be on the door. I'll have these. Just uh, grab one off me on the way out. There's a little booklet called The Real Jesus. That unpacks a bit more about who Jesus is and what he came to do. It would be a great thing to read. And then there's another book as well, uh, which is called At a Time Like This. It focuses particularly on the suffering that comes from, from the grief of losing a loved one, um, but would be a good read for anyone suffering in any way. They're free. Just uh, let me know on the door, and I'll give you one. On. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.